The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. I'm gonna, I hit the blue go live button and we're live. It is Wednesday, October 20th, 2021, 5.04 p.m. Eastern time. And we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have the uh, the world's best bow tying champion back on the show again. Uh, Nicholson Price, welcome back to In Lieu of Fun. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, your paper that's coming out about um, in new innovation. It's called New Innovation Models in Medical AI. It's with Rachel Sachs and Rebecca Eisenberg. Um, and also just, uh, you know, to shoot the shit, talk about beer and whiskey, your incredible, fantastic outfit, the joy that every time I see you, I feel that someone like you in the world exists. It's kind of like how Ben, when Ben wears Oh, wait, show him. You can't see your dog shirt right now, Ben. But like Ben has lots and lots of dog shirts and people give him a lot of crap for them. They're a little nipply sometimes because like the eyes line up weird. But um, but I, I just want to say about the dog shirts, though, they're like a Rorschach test. When you walk down the street, people will lean out of their cars to yell at you and tell you <laughs> you shouldn't wear those shirts. But people will also stop you on the street to say, I love your shirt. And it will. All, and and I think if life is you, you are you are the sum of the enemies you've made. I am happy to uh, make enemies with dog shirts. If you wore an actual like Rorschach blot shirt down the street, do you think some people would stop you and be like, take that vagina away? That or like, some awesome. people would stop you and be like, totally why don't you dress like a cow? Totally <laughs> wear a, a, a Rorschach blot shirt. In fact, now that you mentioned that, you I have to that. like find one. That's um, a great idea. I'm just thinking, I'm like, that would be so, that would be like a really screwed up thing to do. <laughs> like people would be like, oh, I'm what totally... a beautiful butterfly shirt. And like, then like another group of people would be like, that is obscene. Like, <laughs> Anyways, um, we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Nicholson Price. Thank you for coming back. Um, I think the last person in your household who was on the show is your lovely wife, Anna, talking about the people that we are not going to use that word for um, and her amazing work, which we should have her back on again, but um, we will save that for her next book. Yeah, she uh, she had a blast here. In fact, we, we just had a book party uh, for her last week because she won an awesome prize and the book's getting some play. And so that's awesome. And it's very exciting uh, as well. I, I, I feel lucky. Yeah, so great. Um, so I guess we'll kind of get down to it and then we'll kind of spin out into fun later, but I really kind of want to talk about this, um, uh, and great placement, by the way, um, that at the Washington, uh, Law Review, um, the, about your, yeah, about your papers, new innovation models and medical AI. Um, so there is 
a lot of stuff happening in this world. We talked about it kind of in parts last time um, that you were on. Um, but one of the things that I kind of was hoping we could start with as I kind of previewed for you in the in the green room was just if we could talk a little bit about what AI means in the medical context. If it has a different meaning than it means in other types of things, if people use artificial intelligence to kind of to to mean everything from uh, I don't know, just like a pure like anything that implies technology or any type of like any type of math and technology, like um, or or if it's a much more specific thing, I would hope maybe, but maybe not um, in this in this field. So yeah. That's just kind of like a very threshold issue. I know that that seems super basic, but I was wondering if we could start there. Yeah, no, I don't think that's actually a basic question at all. It's a super hard question. And it turns out um, it's it's a pathology of writing about AI and algorithms that every time you present at an interdisciplinary conference, um, there's some crotchety old professor who says, um, your definition is too narrow. And when you use the proper definition, it turns out that we've been doing exactly this for the last 70 years and actually expert-based systems where we just have explicit rules count as artificial intelligence and you whippersnapper, nothing you're doing is different. And it's just regressions and rules. And what are you talking about? And I'm kind of like, whatever, like sure. <laughs> if you wanted to define AI so broadly that it includes any system of expert rules, fine. It turns out that's not what we're talking about. And I don't think that's what most people are talking about when they say like, hey, AI is changing thing and it's new and it's different. And we do different stuff than we did before. But like, if you wanna go there, knock yourself out. When I think about AI, and I think this is relatively broadly um, acceptable within kind of the medical community that people thinking about this stuff, I think about big data, machine learning systems that are doing kind of high dimensional analysis that are looking at lots and lots of factors, finding relationships, making predictions, making classifications in ways that try to mimic the kind of stuff that humans do, but in the machine learning sense, not based on kind of experts going through and saying, here's where we classify things into A, B, and C, but instead feeding a ton of data and saying, all right, machine, like do your best and it will hopefully give us some sort of outputs that either mimic what humans do, maybe do better than humans do, maybe do the same sort of things that humans do, but cheaper or faster or more frequently or, or something like that. So when I think about AI, I'm thinking about big data, machine learning algorithms, often opaque, often plastic and mutable, um, but not kind of the old school, here's a decision tree, here's a set of expert rules, things like that. Perfect. So, okay, so let's just talk about the data that goes into one of these algorithms to kind of make and and the machine and the and the and the data and behavior that the machine learns off of in order to create a better algorithm or improve itself. Um, one of the things that we talk about when we're talking about kind of bias in AI is that the the sample the sample that it there's like I, I think of it as basically two forms there's like a sample that it's trained on right like that might be not women right or might be ages like 20 to 40 or might be all white people um for example 
And then there's also that there are individuals who start the priors of the machine learning or the algorithm off or the, the AI off at a level as the designers and coders that themselves embody their own kind of biases, even if they think they're being neutral, but they don't realize it either because of their personal worldview, they're human beings after all, um, and whatever else. And that those like either either kind of wash out of the system if it's trained on really good data or they kind of, or they don't, right? I mean, not that, that well, that was actually like, I was trying to say like, do you think that ever happens? Um, or they, or much more likely it kind of ends up um, building on itself in some type of way or kind of accentuating the, the biases that are built into the system. Um, that seems super important when you're training something for medical research like incredibly important so yeah no totally totally agree and and i'd actually i would add in a third set of of bias that's important here so i think you you, you nailed two of them one of them is kind of biased inclusion of a biased set of what sort of data get included so for instance um it's it's kind of fun it turns out that uh the vast majority of data used for training medical ai come from like two states um Massachusetts and California, because it turns out Massachusetts, like there's a hospital in Boston that has a big open source data set on ICU data and it's at a big fancy hospital. And so everybody uses it because it's freely available. And then California has Stanford and a bunch of stuff uh, uh, in uh, San Francisco as well. So one thing is definitely like whose data get included, what sort of data get included, not lots of states, not lots of rural people, not lots of poor folks, et cetera. Um, and then there's the people involved. The third set of data, the third source of bias, and this um, is, is well known in the criminal space, but also shows up a ton in the health space, is even if you have totally unbiased developers, and even if you have perfectly reflective data, um, those data reflect a system that has itself massive amounts of embedded bias. So, you know, the fact that when black kids and white kids go in with the same ailment, the white kids get the good drugs and the black kids don't frequently. Uh, or that when women and men go in with the same set of symptoms, the men get diagnosed with PTSD and the women get diagnosed with hysteria, right? <laughs> That's just reflected Sorry. in the data. Oh yeah. Dude, totally like, wait, not actually Horrifying. diagnosed with hysteria. That's like the yellow wallpaper or some shit. Like that's not a thing that people actually still diagnose people with. What? No, wait, what? they call it anxiety now. Oh, fuck. <laughs> that's, that's dark, Nicholson. Uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks. They I call try. it that time of the month. Yeah, I know. Like, it's just like, no, I think that this is, no, I'm like, I'm joking about it because, like, you have to joke about it because if you, people take it seriously. And yeah. And so, like, I just, yeah, or else you cry. Yeah. Or, like, just kind of, you know, do something like, give up on everything um but there is i do kind of like i do think that this is like fascinating in terms of like well we'll get to this in a second i'm gonna let you finish what you're gonna say but i was gonna say about like legal interventions yeah in this in this area so like which you kind of acknowledge are thin um in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah so i realized i didn't i didn't actually answer your question which is kind yeah of what sorry happens. i cut you off and yeah no worries. Uh, you know, one possibility is you, you would love to say, hey, this is all going to come out in the wash. And it turns out we're going to put bias in 
and actually the machine's going to learn over time and it's going to and we're going to have a system that accurately collects data and if it turns out that it starts out like treating women less well than men then over time we'll recognize that hey we're treating women less well than men and we have the data to support that and so we should change things and part of like the the dream of a learning health system as embodied in kind of machine learning and ai is we can learn from our mistakes really systematically and ideally pretty quickly and kind of fix that and that seems awesome um as you can tell like I, i'm hopeful i'm a little bit of a tech utopian i think that would be great part of the problem is we're, we're really not good about collecting data in an ongoing fashion like we're not great about saying hey how'd that go for you because you better it's a HIPAA violation um, whenever you do it <laughs> Yes, everything is a HIPAA violation. HIPAA with two P's. I've learned that. Yes. I'm actually uh, teaching HIPAA to my students on Monday in health law, and I'm going through a long set of exercises drawn, I'll be honest, a decent amount from bad HIPAA takes on Twitter um, <laughs> and all of the things that people say, you can't do this because of HIPAA. And I just want us to go through and say, why are they wrong? Like, no, no, seriously, why are they so, so very it, wrong? It's a good way of teaching HIPAA, actually, is figuring out all the things HIPAA doesn't prevent you from doing that people think it does. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so can I ask, a, like, uh, are we blaming AI for non-AI things question? It, it seems to me that there's multiple sources of bias that we routinely just refer to as AI bias that are actually qualitatively completely different from one another. So one is bias in the actual AI system itself. That is, the, the AI system is designed so that it's better at recognizing white faces than black faces. Um, sure. The second is the AI system itself is fine, but it is trained on data that is more, is disproportionately white. And so it is better, it has more practice basically at identifying white faces than black faces. We call both of those AI bias. They are actually not the same thing. One of them is a flaw with the algorithm. The other is very correctable by, by our introducing better data to the system. The third thing is when the AI produces information for us that we don't find, uh, uh, you know, that that reflects a disparate impact in some way that we can't identify anything that's wrong with the AI or the bias that it's trained on, but boy, we don't like this result. And so there's, we, we have this assumption that there may be, um, that, that it must reflect a, a, a bias in the system. So my first question is, am I right that we're kind of a little bit too casual in calling all three of those AI bias? And more importantly, whatever the nomenclature, um, should we have very different attitudes toward them? Um, that is, 
One is a is a systemic problem that is uh, in which a computer program shouldn't be relied on to the extent that it does. Uh, the second is something that requires remediation but can be remediated. And the third is a, you know, is a little bit of a don't ask questions that you don't want the answer to situation. Yeah, so, I mean, you're, you're asking kind of a classic lumping or splitting question. Um, and I, I'm going to give you an unsurprisingly law professor answer, which is it depends. Um, you know, if what you want to say is, hey, AI, AI bias is a problem, like regulators should think about it, developers should think about it, then yeah, I think it's useful to say, here's a set of stuff which is going to result in outcomes that are problematic for a set of various reasons that, you know, to the extent that we can, that all of these things are going to have similarly problematic outcomes, we can say, hey, something's going into the hopper and we don't like what comes out. And I'm going to use my outcome metrics to say this is a problem. But one of the nice things about healthcare in this space, by the way, is theoretically, if you're doing a good job of data collection, like, you should have some objective results, not entirely, but some like people dying is a, like a solid binary variable. It's not perfect, but like it's a lot better than like, oh, I did content moderation right. Um, so like there's something to that that we actually like eventually we should be getting to ground truth. Like it's more observable here than it is in many contested spaces where we worry about AI. Who should have won the election? Like, fuck if I know. But like, <laughs> holy crap, all the black people died. Like, that's a problem that I can say my algorithm is doing a really bad job telling me how to care for black people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing at black people dying. I'm laughing at like the, 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 the base comparison, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Right, of course. So, um, so I, I think there's some benefit to lumping it together and saying like, hey, here's a set of stuff that's going into the hopper. Something's going wrong in the hopper and we can kind of measure it all with the same stuff on the back end. Um, is it important to distinguish between these in particular because of the interventions that we think are useful to potentially combat them? Yeah, certainly. You know, if you're saying, hey, you know, we should have more diverse set of developers because there's development, there's bias in the people developing the systems, totally different from we're not collecting the right data to train the system on, which again is different from we're collecting data from a system that reflects biases and underlying care, which frankly is also different from the claim that says we're collecting data that reflect a system which is fair under some definitions, but because of past injustices is problematic and not fair under the set of outcomes that we want. And all of those are subject to different sort of interventions. And you can say, like, I am meeting the heck out of challenge one because my developers have gone through the best anti-bias training you can possibly ask and they're wildly diverse and they're awesome and still not do a damn thing about challenge four where you say turns out even if the medical system treats everybody identically we're not starting from the same place and we need to fix that and that's something we should take into account in the problem here as well um so yeah i, I the answer is both um, they're all, I think they're usefully grouped together, but it's really important to, to split them apart. One last point I'll make about this. <clears throat> some of these things really perniciously interact. They're not separable. Mm. So 
to the extent that you have, you know, systemic bias feeding into data, if the data are totally perfectly collected and then feed back into an algorithm that looks neutral, but isn't because it has embedded bias within it, that's going to be reflected in a new practice of care, which is going to influence what our baselines are in step two, as we try to take metrics for performance and improve the system in the future. So, um, so there, there are a, some really challenging interactions. Can you give us an example of that? Just bring that down to ground no. level? No. Okay. Uh, sure, sure. <clears throat> um, so this is this is fun. This is actually um, uh, something that I really enjoy. It's um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, my wife's book, and it turns out that Anna and I uh, and, and a wonderful professor named Shonika Collier uh, at George Washington are, are writing about trying to like think about these cyclical dynamics um, in the context of medicine. So you know you can think about a situation where, say, how would these things interact? So here's a data set. Uh, so okay, so here's a here's a useful example. Hopefully, um, Optum Health uh, is an insurer, and they've developed an algorithm that uh, predicts what sorts of patients are likely to have medical complications. They do this. They're an insurer. They want to save money, and so the way that they do this is they say, okay, we want to figure out complicated patients because we would like to assign those patients care coordinators to try to reduce the risk of complications and ultimately reduce our costs. Cool. Sounds great. Um, turns out it's very hard to say what a complicated patient is. So they turn to a convenient proxy. How much does the patient cost us? Okay, seems mildly reasonable. Um, got some problems here though. And it turns out when you do this, the result that you get is uh, with the exact same set of risk factors, a, uh, a black patient is predicted to be at substantially lower risk of uh, uh, complex medical conditions than a white patient. And the reason for that is because our system tends to spend more money on white patients than it does on black patients. So the proxy of cost comes into this and gets reflected into a, an analysis, which at least the front seems like a, a reasonable proxy. Now, so that's the first step. So Ziad Obermeyer, by the way, at, uh, at Berkeley is the one who did this, this really terrific work, kind of reverse engineering this algorithm and figuring it out. But then you say, okay, well, what's, what happens when you do this, when you put it into play? And the answer is, okay, well, white patients are going to get more care coordination than black patients with the same issue, which means that by the time you go to round two and you're training the algorithm on the outcome data from the first set of implementing this stuff, you'll think, oh, okay, like that's an intervention that's quite successful with the set of patients that actually got that intervention, which means you're going to get less care coordination. You're going to increase the bias for the next step. And you have the benefit of kind of AI washing it by saying, hey, look, you know, we just put a neutral proxy into place. And then we just watched what happened. And it turns out we have no idea why. But it turns out this makes a much better difference for white patients than for black patients. And so like that seems like cool. We're just going to we're going to go with that because it's like the data bear it out. For, we don't know why, but this intervention seems to work in that direction if you look at it at all. And so you could see this kind of self-reinforcing cycle um, in a kind of totally automated fashion. And even if you look at it, it seems uh, seems like it's reasonable. GDF, I'm going to intervene really quickly, although I, I want 
I, I, I know you've been like patiently waiting to answer your question, but I, to get to the legal framework, this seems to me very much like the um, like basic kinds of employment law, like uh, basic things that came out of the civil rights movement that forbade uh, de jure or like by the law, like kind of like ra- like discrimination, like things that said like will not like you know like will not hire blacks, will not hire Irish, will not hire whatever. Um, versus, um, oh man, uh, versus kind of like really kind of the, I know I just forgot the Latin term for it. Like you just caught me. Um, but like the, the, the in practice act of basically just not hiring black people, not putting a sign out and saying that, but just kind of saying it. And then we get into questions at university of Michigan and other places of like, trying to show that in the outcomes through like discriminatory impact um, and such, you know, and ideas like that. But like discriminatory impact, like that even idea, that idea that like, we don't know what's in the black box. We can't tell intent. We can't judge racial intent. But what we're going to show is that these outcomes are so fucked up that like they couldn't possibly not involve some level of intent seems almost analogous to like what you're describing it, it was closely or in some ways analogous to what you're describing and so i'm interested if that what you're what, what you come out with in this paper which like is like what could the law do that isn't going to replicate what the law already can't do and what ai already can't do yeah so i'll, I'll say a couple of things um one of the which is that i get to like nerd out a little bit here about like statutory structures um because it turns out that you know i i imagine you're thinking a little bit about disparate impact litigation um when you're saying you know maybe there maybe we can't demonstrate uh you know intentional discrimination but we can show that there are disparate effects and so there's got to be something going on even if it's not conscious um so fun fact um, the in the Affordable Care Act, uh, Section 1557 says, "Hey, in healthcare, for the first time now, for lots of healthcare, not all of healthcare, but most healthcare, we now have anti-discrimination statutes. Hooray! We're going to borrow the standards from a bunch of other laws. Uh, we get we'll get sex from Title IX. We'll get uh, uh, race from." Uh, Title VI of the or Title VII, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act um, will take uh, disabilities from the ADA and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and we'll say you can't discriminate on any of these things in uh, healthcare. So, cool, potentially doable. Um, fun fact: uh, there's no private right of action for disparate impact under the Civil Rights Act for race-based discrimination. So even if you can say, hey, here are some race-based disparate impacts, you can't sue, you just have to go to HHS and say, why don't you do something about it? And it turns out they're not great at doing that. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, this is a space where you know it's, it's hard to demonstrate that. I'll also say a fun, super fun place to look in this. Um, uh, Anya Prince at Iowa and Daniel Schwartz at Minnesota have a really cool piece called Proxy Discrimination um, in AI. I read this recently. And they talk about, yeah, it's a great piece. It's a terrific piece. And they basically go through how like AI, again, provides a terrific way to wash out all of the messiness of 
oh, we don't like people of whatever particular category without saying we're discriminating against people on a protected category because we've got tons of proxies that are not protected. Uh, and AI does a really terrific job of, uh, of using proxies, even if the underlying cause, uh, underlying factors are supposed to be protected. Yep, I am advising a student note that is um, a little bit sympathetic to proxies uh, because they think that it makes for a better uh, insurance scheme and like lower costs for insurance companies and thus lower costs for really? like lower costs for healthcare um, and think that proxy discrimination is a good thing and like kind of like taking that on in a student note is like. I'm kind of, you know, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many minds here. How do I like even begin to like help you steer around them? But it's a very, but it's a, it, this is why I read the paper because like in advising him, I was like, oh, like, let me like kind of do a little bit of homework before I dig into this, but go ahead, GDF. Um, thanks. So one of the things that I kind of was ruminating about is that here your end user is the one most typically constructing these algorithms. And that somewhat differentiates it from a seller who is designing this for mass application. And so if you have users constructing their own algorithms, how, or especially considering the black box that the algorithm exists within, how can we better protect discrepancies across the board? Or is there a regulatory schema that we would want to put into place to protect one system from being fantastic and another one from just absolutely <laughs> a, a bit abandoning patients, for lack of a better word, to their the algorithm. Yeah. So, um, so now we now we come to the the new innovation models in AI. Bit. Um, uh, for what it's worth, the most of what we talked about before, uh, to the extent that I've talked about it, has been in a, a piece called uh, "Contextual Bias in Medical AI," talking about different types of bias, things like that. Um, so the new models of medical innovation piece, uh, which is with uh, Rebecca Eisenberg here at Michigan and Rachel Sachs at WashU, um, points out the fact that like lots of medical AI is not being developed in the same way that we think of medical innovation being developed, like a drug company or a device company doing something and like going through FDA and we got this big regulatory gantlet on the front end and we're like, okay, cool, like let's make sure it works. And then the, in response to like the questions that we've been asking, you might say, hey, on the back end, it's hugely difficult to measure discrimination. Disparate impact is really hard. So like, let's try to tackle this on the front end. Let's have FDA set in a requirement that says you can't have bias and here's how you demonstrate that. And in fact, I argue exactly that in an earlier paper. In fact, multiple earlier papers. I'm like, hey, FDA should take care of this. It's really hard to figure out on the back end. Make FDA do it. Cool. Or make FDA make other people do it. But it turns out just tons of this stuff doesn't go through FDA at all. FDA just doesn't see it. You can make whatever kind of arguments you want about FDA not having the expertise or using the wrong standard when they do 510K versus pre-market approval or whatever. But like, there are a couple hundred products that use AI that have gone through FDA. There is so much more than that um, just, that's just, being tested or implemented just, already. Uh, just for sorry, the audience, five, 510K is, 510K is a medical device review. So just letting them know. Yes. So sorry, FDA has a process where they say, hey, show us all the stuff 
that make sure that your device works and is effective, that's pre-market approval. Or they can say, hey, don't worry so much about showing us all this stuff, just demonstrate that it's equivalent to something else we already said was okay. That's 510K. It's a less rigorous way to get something on the market for stuff that we think is not so new. Thank you. I appreciate the, the point that I should clarify that. Um, but most of like tons of stuff that's being used now and being developed now, FDA has, hasn't seen and is never going to see. Because a lot of things being used are developed in-house by health insurers. That algorithm that I mentioned that Optum developed, FDA never saw that. FDA is not going to see that. Oh, that's not a medical device. They're not marketing it. They're just using it to direct their own care and make suggestions to hospitals. When Epic develops an algorithm, this is an electronic health record company that has uh, roughly 80% market share, has a ton of stuff. It doesn't send things to FDA. It just says, hey, let's predict the likelihood of you having kidney failure or sepsis or whatever and pushes that out to a system. FDA doesn't see that. When Duke says, here's our system to, again, monitor sepsis, FDA doesn't see that either. It turns out some of these systems are great. Duke seems to work quite well. Apex seems to work less well. All of these algorithms that we had for predicting stuff with COVID, they seem to be, and I'm going to use the technical term here, totally worthless and don't work at all. Um, and FDA doesn't see any of this stuff. All the stuff that's developed in-house almost never goes through FDA. The stuff that's developed by EHR vendors, which explicitly don't talk about much in this paper because we're focused really on kind of end user innovators, um, that also doesn't go through FDA. And so huge amounts of stuff that's already happening behind the scene or getting developed, like the idea that this is going through some sort of centralized review, or therefore that a centralized review is the place that tackled the challenging issues, totally false. Reminds me very deeply of what I feel like, well, maybe everything is content moderation. Um, because I was just thinking that like, or like everything is medical innovation, because I was just thinking like, it's just really like everything that you're describing just strikes me very much as the same type of thing that I'm battling right now. When I, I just was like talking to some co congressperson's office and like talking to them about which agency should regulate something and what should do something like, how about transparency reports? Should we have transparency reports from like these companies? And like, well, like. What are you going to do with the transparency reports? Do you just like want stuff? Because like I would use a transparency report as a researcher totally differently than like Genevieve would read a transparency report. Like maybe she want, wants bar graphs and like I want the actual raw numbers. And like they're both transparent, but like at different levels. And in fact, if you gave her a spreadsheet of numbers, it would be not as transparent. And when you put it into bar graph form, it's more transparent and like more understandable. And Similarly, I think that there's something to be said, but like, but, but generally the whole point of this, sorry, was like that the whole point of this was, I just kind of was saying that like, well, are you going to hold like, are the, is it going to be like a 10 K or like, is there going to be like an sec that like reviews this? And if it turns out they lied to you about disclosures, they should have made that like, you're going to hold them accountable in some way. If you don't put those things into place, if you don't have any external mechanisms and there's no one checking this people are like oh my god yeah i guess that's true and i was like yeah it's almost like this is not solvable by just being like let's stamp it with an fda sticker 
or like let's just hand it off to I don't know like it just it strikes me that these are um that there's a lot of trying to make all of this really hard stuff somebody else's problem and to pass the buck on kind of weighing in and no one wants to be the person like just kind of like holding you know holding whatever's in the black box maybe it's really bad stuff in that black box i don't know so yeah so the problem of kind of localized governance is really hard um how do we deal with this where's the capacity you know I could say, here, here's here's my dream utopia, um, that there's development and validation of basic methods that are kind of centralized and centrally validated, maybe by FDA or other folks, um, and the localized. Uh, validation before implementation in a particular system based on their own data needs uh, also takes place ideally with kind of help by facilitators. Uh, and once we have systems installed, we're collecting ongoing data, which inc including performance metrics that are relatively transparent, both in raw data and once in a while in aggregated form, which we could imagine their localized regulators looking at potential I, I think fda review frankly is unlikely for like here's something that happens at x hospital in you know rural idaho i just don't think it's going to happen um but you know we have some combination of localized uh validation other stakeholders insurers weighing in yay i'll wave my magic wand and say collaborative governance is going to help us uh mm -hmm to enable all of this i think we need you know investment in infrastructure of sharing data and gathering the data evaluating them like all of these to some extent are public goods like the tools of governance are themselves public goods that we can spend resources to help develop um, but i think it's really challenging to thread the needle between the fact that performance really is going to vary at a relatively local level and governance capacity at local level is often very weak. The places where it's strongest are the places that are already developing things like academic medical centers or fancy wealthy hospital systems. And that's great if they develop systems and use best practices and make sure they actually work. Awesome. Um, uh, but not going to happen all the place unless we have all, all the time unless we have uh, uh, good interventions. Have you seen? So I, I want to quickly respond to. Oh, I just want to quickly mention um, uh, with respect to like concreteness, I, I, I see in the chat folks mentioning the fact that like it's tough to follow without concrete examples. So um, here, let me let me let me give you a, a concrete example. Um, if you have, so, so Duke has a very well-known system called sepsis watch, which they've trained in their own kind of flagship hospital. So Duke has a flagship hospital, and then they have a couple of smaller satellite hospitals that are not quite as well-resourced. They've trained a program called sepsis watch, which they developed in their flagship hospital that monitors patients really frequently for signs of sepsis, which is basically when your body can't handle bacteria and like really just shuts down and everything goes wrong and it happens fast. If you intervene quickly, you can stop it 
if you miss it, it can kill people and it kills a lot of people. So they have a monitoring algorithm that says, hey, this patient's about to go into septic shock. That's really bad. And then they have teams of interventionists that like rush over and try to deal with them quickly. When they tried to expand this to their less fancy hospitals, it was hard because it turns out the predictors that predict septic shock are not immediately generalizable. The patient populations are different. The type of care that they're getting is different. The type of conditions that they're coming in with are different. And also the resources that they have to intervene are different across these different places. And that's all within one health system. It's all run by Duke. They use either the same or very similar electronic health records. If you say, okay, let's take that algorithm, which seems to work very well for them, and translate it to the University of Michigan, also a rich, fancy, excellent hospital. Like, does it work? Not really, not particularly well. If you just take it off the rack and just try to shove it in, can you get it to work in a useful fashion? Totally. Hmm. That's hard. And it's hard to make sure that it works. And it's hard to make sure that it works right and well like implementing it and validating it are both challenging tests. Now, if you said, can Michigan do it? I will tell you, absolutely. They've got the capacity. If you say, can the Southern Iowa Community Cancer Center implement it and validate it and make sure that it works in their sample? I'd say that's a, that's a big ask. And hmm. can they implement it and validate it in a way that it just not doesn't work on average, but works for everybody? works for different types of patients from different types of environments, that's even harder. And so what I mean by trying to do governance at the local level is saying, A, how can we make sure that when Michigan implements it, it works and it works well and it works without bias? B, women try to take it to places with many fewer resources. How can we give them the capacity to try to make sure that this is, this is gonna work there as well? Oh, that's a really great concrete example. Thank you for that. I, and the, yeah, it actually, someone said in the chat um, that it reminded them of local governance and land use and not to be a total like property, but like it reminds me, like I just was having this conversation with Molly Brady a couple of weeks ago in which I was like, Molly, like, is there any way like to like figure out what the, what the laws around short-term rental markets are? Uh, and like, and I, like, and like, I was like, am I, Emma, is it quite as much of a mess as I think? Like she teaches both a local governance course and a land use course and a property course. So this is like my person. And she's like, oh no, it is a fucking disaster. Like it is like local government is a disaster. And like have fun sending your 10 RAs to like chase down like every borough's like and like neighborhood associations like short term i mean i knew that but it's just kind of like it's like a it's crazy once you try to quantify it how much you realize that it doesn't pop and play that there isn't like there isn't like they're all kind of it's like convergent evolution like there's bat wings and roach wings and bird wings and like they're all wings <laughs> but like they're all like and they're, they're all like making you fly but they're just some taste better than others yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways um genevieve did you have another question yes very quickly um it's so tempting to go down the rabbit hole of like different medical cultures at different hospitals but i'm not going to do that 
Um, but I want to ask you quickly, in the places that you've seen these programs implemented, is there a way for a patient to directly challenge the um, implementation of the algorithm on their own care? Or are they just largely unaware? <laughs> not, not, I mean, I think there's, I think a lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes. Um, so to the extent that things are uh, embedded in electronic health records systems, which they often are behind the scenes. So stuff that Epic puts out as algorithms in behind the scenes, like you don't see to the extent that they're already being used in your care, you, you likely have no idea. Um, I don't mean that to sound scary. Like I, I frankly, like I, I want to take a brief step back. So a lot of this depends how worried you are about this depends a lot on your baseline. Um, so if you think uh, that medical care is generally awesome and that most people get good medical care and have access to what they need and the doctors are generally competent and know what they're doing and people get access to good care, then you might say, my goodness, this is all terrible. We're offsourcing this to flawed machines. If you have a different baseline where you say, man, a lot of people sure can't get much good care at all. And a lot of doctors have no idea what they're doing. If you can get to see a doctor in the first place, then like maybe you're a little less worried. And the fact that an algorithm is running in the background and you don't know that it is a little less problematic. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, Glenn Cohen has a nice piece in the Georgetown Law Journal talking about whether or not we should require informed consent uh, for the use of algorithms in care because they're black boxy and stuff like that. Um, I think the answer is probably it, it, it's I don't think current law requires it in most instances. I don't think most patients are aware of it when it's being used. I don't think most patients will be aware of it when it's also being used. And so the question of can they challenge it? I'm guessing most of the time they're not even going to know about it. And so I think the answer is, you know, a fortiori, probably not. Yeah. And to Glenn's, to Glenn's paper, I mean, that's Rosanna should come back and talk about kind of some of this, but like Rosanna Summers work and in like informed consent and the idea of consent and how, how informed it can be in a lot of these situations is like, um, I think exactly um, relevant. We have to start going to questions. We oh my God, I can't believe we only have 10 minutes left. 10 minutes left that went so fast. Uh, Larky, uh, the floor is yours. Please speak. Hello. Uh, hi. Hi. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Oh. Um, hi, Professor. Um, so this was great. The parts I could follow, a lot of it went over my head because I'm not a smart man. Um, but I was reading something from my former professor, uh, Mike Carrier, the other day about um, generics uh, being kept off the market by people whose labs patent. They're paying the generic makers to not make it. So I'm just like, my head's all about like, all right, who's who's making money off of this? Like, are we, should we expect like research universities to, you know, use AI to, you know, make everyone's life better? Is this going to be like a different kind of big pharma where, you know, medical companies uh, are doing all this in-house and then, you know, just extracting more from patients and insurers for all this stuff? Like, what does... What does uh what does this mean for me? You know, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, so first off, uh, uh, thanks for the Mike Carrier shout out. His work is is super fun and delightful. Um, uh, you know, part of what we really focus on in this paper is that actually the kind of standard dynamics of the way that I at least think about I, I and I think many others think about biomedical innovation 
are kind of upended in this space. Um, you know, I, I think a pretty traditional picture of biomedical innovation is that really important things are kind of the patentability and patent protection for medical devices and drugs. Uh, and FDA regulation really matters a lot for innovation and insurance reimbursement really matters a lot for innovation. Um, and this seems to be a space where none of those things matter anywhere near as much for a lot of the innovation that we're seeing. Part of that's just because, you know, there are lower barriers to entry. The fact that FDA is often not involved and so you don't have to take it through an approval process. The fact that a lot of this is done with pre-existing data for the folks that have pre-existing data lowers entry barriers. And so that means that things like insurance reimbursement and patents aren't kind of necessary to create the returns to get people to jump through those hoops in the first place. And we're seeing a much more kind of democratic set of innovation in as much as there are like, there are lots more people doing stuff in this space. And they're doing it for different reasons. Some of them are definitely doing it for just pure straight up commercial reasons. So, you know, Epic's developing stuff and in part that's because they wanna lock people into their ecosystem, which frankly, they've already done pretty well. Insurers are developing stuff because they think this is a way for us to save money. Hospitals and health systems are doing it for a bunch of different reasons. Some of it's improving the quality of care, maybe with the hope that they save money in uh, uh, costs or that they get shared savings from you know, Medicare or something like that. Some of them are doing it in terms of resource allocation and saying, how do we make our ER run more smoothly by making sure we've got nurses there at the right time? Turns out AI is a set of tools that are going to help us do that. There are ton of different motivations. You know, there's not a lot of, I, I'm not going to say it, it, the profit motive is absent here. It's certainly there, but it's not kind of monolithic in the way that we expect to see in the drug industry or we seem to see in the drug industry. Um, the other aspect is we just, at least so far, don't see to see the dynamic where we've got a developer that develops something and then just sells it to a boatload of people. We see that some but nowhere near the same amount. There are examples of it happening, um, but it, it's not the whole shebang in the way that it seems to be for say, you know, the hot new hepatitis C drug. Av, hey. nice to see you. Go nice for it. Nice to see you. Uh, okay, good. So uh, we're trying to regulate AI these days in various ways. Um, in 10 years from now, what is the like the biggest mistake we could uh, like think that we've done now, like the decision, the policy decision that we've taken or not taken that we'll, we will regret the most. Ooh, that's a fun question. Yeah, um, write us your dystopian fiction novel right now, Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into techno utopian. Actually, I'm going to go in the opposite direction and say, I think the big mistake is fear. I think that the way that an, an obvious policy response to this is to say, man, AI is terrifying. The only thing we can really do with it is let it help out humans do stuff they're already doing. We've always got to have a human in the loop. 
and physicians should rely on what they do best and will relegate AI to a triaging role and like say, this stuff is just too dangerous and we gotta be too careful. And um, for my money, that instinct is entirely understandable and hugely problematic because I think it comes from a perspective of frankly, like a baseline assumption that what we already have now is pretty good. Um, which well is problematic I... for two reasons. One is there's lots of challenge in what we have. And the other answer is a lot of the people asking that question and answering that question have lots more than lots of other folks. Um, so when I think about how do we want to ensure that AI works, if the answer is we want to make sure that if you've got an ophthalmology AI, you've got an ophthalmologist there to make sure it works, that's great if you're Ann Arbor, in Ann Arbor. That's much less good if you're in Flint, and it's a hell of a lot less good if you're in a country that has you know one ophthalmologist for every two million residents, which is not unusual. Uh, so that's... That's what I think. I think we've got to get this right, but we couldn't, shouldn't shy away. Like this has the potential to be really transformative in a really positive way. And that's, that's the mistake I'm worried about us making. I love that answer. That was great. And I actually, Ben, you're muted. I, oh. I make the exact same argument in the debate about killer robots and people find it appalling. You know, this is the question <laughs> of when AIs should be able to kill you, right? Which is the the flip side of the question. And I say, you know, that, you know, the human rights groups say we always need a person in the loop. And I'm like, you know, which of the great genocides of the 20th century were done by AIs? Like humans are not so great at this. Um, and, I, you know, it's wow. exactly- okay, that was not, it, it's going in a different way from what no, I was saying. It's exactly the same argument. It's, it's just with the, uh, gun in the other hand, you might say. Um, I, you know, like there's an, a very complacent assumption that what we, the way we do it now is fine. But, you know, that's not really very true. Well, I, well, so I one of the things I'll, I'll just shout out. Um, I'll, I'll shout out, I'm working on another piece with uh, with Margot Kaminsky, who does content moderation and all sorts of digital stuff, and Rebecca Krutoff, who does Killer Robots, and we're talking specifically about humans in the loop, when they're necessary, when they're not, how the law affects them, when they're good, when they're not. Um, and it's super fun working on a project with people from such different substantive areas and such different priors um, about like how the state of affairs is now what the end state is and how AI helps us get there and how humans in the loop do or don't help us on that path. Um, so that's, it, it's really fun to explore these issues. They're, they're super interesting to me. Yeah, totally. Richard, you have oh, the last question. Okay. I'll make it a, a good one. Uh, so uh, I'm curious how uh, medical AI um, intersects with evidence-based medicine. And um, so how the decision, for example, how would the decisions uh, for example, regarding courses of treatment that proceed from the results of AI-based modeling, how would those differ from what we would see in the practice of evidence-based medicine? Is, are we talking about a difference of kind or a difference in just order of magnitude or a bit of both? 
I, I think it's a bit of both, honestly. Um, so there are instances, like, like to, to some extent, we hope that AI is nothing but evidence-based medicine, right? It's all right. about let's take the evidence and learn from it and do good stuff. Uh, and that's, that's the hope. Um, will it totally contradict some things that evidence-based medicine tells us? Oh, yeah, definitely. Is it sometimes because evidence-based medicine is totally wrong? Probably. Um, God, there's this great study, um, uh, uh, again, by Ziad Obermeyer uh, about knee pain. And so here's, here's the fun uh, uh, conflict that motivated this study, which is that... Um, uh, and, uh, sorry, that all that most of my examples are, are race, black or white, or women and men. Uh, there's a much broader variety of variation, but these are the ones that have been most studied. Um, so his example is, it turns out there's not great congruence between uh, a self-rated pain for knee pain uh, and kind of physician reads of um, uh, problems on knee x-rays for black patients. Um, physicians are better at saying like, here are the physical problems in the knee. Like I see the physical problems um, for white patients than they are for black patients. And so there have been a bunch of interpretations of this in the past, like mostly really problematic things about like black patients feel pain in different ways or they're not actually serious or whatever. Um, uh, Obermeyer did a really clever study where they said, let's look at a bunch of x-rays and see whether or not we can train an AI to evaluate x-rays for patient self-reported pain. Because if we can, then that suggests that there's actually something physical going on in the knee and we're just not getting it right. And it turns out AI does a great job of reflecting, of, of demonstrating or of identifying self-reported pain for black patients and for white patients, and it does them differently. And then you look back and you say, oh, well, where is our evidence-based scale of Knee, patient knee pain based of, and it's like a study of like 60 coal miners in England in like the 1950s. And it's like, oh, okay, like that's totally evidence-based medicine. Look at it, I'm looking at an x-ray, I'm evaluating features A, B, and C, but like the evidence, and this is coming back to the earlier point that we made, that's reflecting a bunch of stuff about the system and how it's gathered. Yep. Oh man, that really brought it home. Nicholson. That was amazing. I don't know how you did that. Full circle, baby. <laughs> You're a great American. Uh, I am. This was a really fun way to spend an hour that went by so, so fast. Uh, thank by. you for. Yeah, I really can't believe like how quickly that went by. I was like, I looked at the thing. I was like, holy cow, we have like all these questions and it's already like 40 after. That was awesome. I can't wait for this paper to be finished and to be out. I will link to it one more time um, in uh in the chat um and i'm also like looking at zaid obermeyer's papers i'm just gonna throw up his entire publishing thing <laughs> his papers are amazing like these are really interesting studies that he's done they're like i i'm, I'm not for i wasn't familiar with him but this is uh this is super great um so let me hold on let me put the your link this is nicholson's paper there we go and um thank you this has been this has been super fun it's uh it's delightful to chat about this stuff great questions fun stuff oh just very very enjoyable 
Yeah, no, it's really, it's such a joy. We have such a smart audience and we have such more guests and sometimes we muddle our way through even when we haven't had time to read the full papers. Um, but it's, uh, it was, it was just, it was a joy as always. Um, we will be back 22 hours and 57 minutes from now with Will Codrington, um, assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. Um, what is your, what is your bow tie of Nicholson? Sorry. Somebody asked, we said we didn't get a good bow tie view. So this is actually a micrograph of, uh, hepatitis C, um, which is a, uh, a fun example because hepatitis C is, uh, a really delightful example of a drug that probably shouldn't have been developed, but was, um, it's, we say things like. Why would you develop a drug to cure a disease that afflicts the poor when instead you could develop drugs to treat chronic conditions and extract years of rent from the wealthy? And nope, we've got multiple drugs that just straight up cure a disease that mostly afflicts poor folks and they work great and we got a bunch of them and they started out expensive, but they're huge savers and now we've got competition and it's like, hey, cool. I just want to say we have had 500 and 33 episodes of uh, In Lieu of Fun over uh, almost two years, and you are the first person to wear a hepatitis tie A, B, or C. Uh, and so I just want to say, you know, every time you come on the show, a new bow tie record is set. I, I just like, Nicholson is just full of firsts, generally. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... We're not allowed to fund anymore, uh, but we are allowed to have disease imprinted bow ties. And and we're going to have a must wear rule about them pretty soon. I can't it's wait to see a, what you wear the next time you're on the show. It's going to be amazing. See you guys later. Ciao.